The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and today I want to talk about truth. What happens to truth? You can think about truth and true and and tree. Do you know that tree comes from the same root as true? It's all about being straight and straight up and true, true like a tree. What happens to truth? And, you know, this is not a philosophy podcast. You know, there's so many podcasts that I assume there must probably be hundreds of philosophy podcasts. This is not one of them. And this isn't a podcast about intellectual history. I'll bet there aren't as many of those, but this is not one of those either. This is supposed to be about linguistics. And so what I'm calling truth in that portentous way is kind of a substitute for opening music for this monologue really is about words like true. Words like true, like true itself or real or actual. What happens to those words? Because something does happen to those words. And it's actually a very interesting thing. All sorts of careers that you could either say those words choose or really the careers are chosen for them. Kind of the way in some countries people are shunted down certain tracks quite deliberately when they hit something like 13 or 14. True and real and actual and literal. We're going to get to that. Those words are chosen for certain careers, and it really gives you a sense of how a bunch of words becomes a language. And so why don't we start with lotion? Carrie is so very... Different. It doesn't feel like ordinary lotion. It's concentrated. It was specially made for dry, rough skin. Carrie is so very... Rich in emollients. It even made my rough elbows and heels soft again. Carrie is so very... Recommended by many dermatologists... So I'll pay more for Carrie. After all, it's the only skin I've got. Carrie is so very... Different. So very... Rich. So very... Recommended. Carrie is so very... You know, when I was thinking about that, I knew it wasn't a new commercial. I was thinking, well, that must have been back, you know, early in the Bush administration. That's like, you know, 2001, maybe 1999. You know, that thing is from 1986. That thing is from over half of my life ago, and I can still feel it and smell it like it was last week. It was this weird commercial where I always found it kind of intriguing because they seemed to be hoping that you would want to have sex not necessarily with the model in the commercial. It seemed like they wanted you to think about having sex with the lotion. I always found it interesting, but I played it because of that stressing of the word very. Intensifiers in language and words for truth. Where does very come from? Well, very actually originally comes from a word that means true. And you can feel it in, you know, words like verity, the eternal verities, or in vino veritas. You know, there's truth in wine. Drink some wine and who knows what's going to fall out of your mouth. Very comes from what started for English as a French word, very, and that meant true. It meant real. And at first, the idea was to say verily, and therefore you get that verily word. You know, if you were one of the legions and legions 
of adolescents in South Jersey who was interested in old radio and borrowed cassettes from the Camden County Library in Echelon, New Jersey. I'm sure that this was a, a massive cohort of people. If you were one of that mob, then the episode of My Favorite Husband with Lucille Ball that you first heard was one where Liz substitutes at a club play. That would have been your first. And actually, it's a hard episode to find here in this modern world, but it was where I first heard the word verily. So real quick sketch of the plot here. Liz, who's basically a prototype for Lucy Ricardo, has learned the lines for a play that takes place in the Middle Ages, and she doesn't know that they've switched the play to a modern courtroom drama, and she winds up up on stage. Here she is. This is my first Verily. Oh, no. Liz has learned the wrong play. Oh, George. (laughs) I wouldn't miss this for anything. Well, you won't have long to wait. There goes the curtain. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I will prove to you, without a shadow of a doubt, that Susan Hathaway is guilty of murdering her husband and must be forced to pay the free penalty. (laughs) I call Susan Hathaway... To the witness chair. Susan Hathaway? (laughs) Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you? Yay, verily. (laughs) So, yay, verily. Somebody would say, and verily, say that enough times and you get very. That's where very comes from. So a word for true, this French very, I don't know why it was said that way, becomes very and you get that intensifier. That's one of the jobs that a true word can have. True becomes truly. That was a truly amusing episode of old radio or sooth, like forsooth or soothsayer. Sooth used to be a word for truth. And so forsooth means for truth. The soothsayer is the truth sayer. And wouldn't you know that in Old English, there's a word which, if it had survived, we would be pronouncing as soothly. That's the sort of thing that happens to true words. English has a way, like many languages related to English, of dragging words that mean true into these certain slots. But that's not the way a language has to do it. English is just one language, and in many ways it's idiosyncratic. In other ways it's ordinary, but it's just one language. You can get a sense of how many other languages, and I'm thinking especially of ones in East and Southeast Asia and some in Africa, will intensify something. You don't have to do it with some word that means truly or soothly or very. So think about how even in English, there's something new. Now, you could say, well, it's very new, but you could also say it's brand new. Now, you don't think about that, but brand what? What kind of brand? You just kind of know that one way of saying that something is very new is to say that it's brand new or spanking new. What in blazes does that mean spanking new? Why does it have to get a spanking? But we just know that that's what you say. If somebody is thin, they're thin. If somebody is a little alarmingly thin, stick thin. There are many things that are thin, but we always refer to the stick. If somebody is very poor, how poor are they? Dirt poor. So not turnip poor, not overalls poor. They are dirt poor. There's something sexy about overalls. That's a little kink of mine I thought I'd just share. I have always found them to be a strange turn on. Okay, that's just said in case I get hit by that bus. In any case, you're dirt poor. Or if you're rich, you're still dirty. You're filthy rich. 
you know, there are other expressions like richest creases that nobody knows. It's filthy rich. Or it doesn't have to be something before. It can be after. Flat. How flat? Flat as a pancake. Think of how many things are flat. But you don't say flat as a sheet of paper. You don't say flat as the Lord's ground or something like that. You have to say flat as a pancake. Is it burnt? Too bad. Is it really burnt? Like somebody's cornbread that I remember. Always it was burnt crisp. That's the sort of thing you have to do. Now, the reason I mention those things, which are part of speaking English, you're not going to find it in any grammar book, but knowing those particular exceptional ways that you intensify some adjectives. In many languages, that goes much further. And so, for example, there's a language called Acha. Acha is spoken like everywhere in the world. It's spoken in southern China. And then it kind of spreads down, like the paint is spreading down the globe, like is it Sherman Williams paint. Some of Acha is in Burma, some of it is in Laos, some of it is in Thailand. But to speak it, you have to know lots and lots and lots of those things like burnt, crisp, and spanking new. An adjective generally has its own little word that you use that means very. And that little word often doesn't mean anything itself. You just kind of have to know. Kind of like spanking new doesn't really mean anything. None of us speak any acha and no, my parents did not speak acha. So I'm not even going to try. But just to give you a sense of it, like let's say that something's deep. To say that something is very deep, you would say, I'm going to make up a word, cuckoo deep. But cuckoo doesn't mean very. It's the word that you use to mean very with deep. If something is white, well, that's one thing. If it's very white, then it's going to be white, something like that. And that that's only used with white. If something is blue, then it's baba boop blue. And baba boop doesn't mean very. It doesn't mean bookshelf. It's just the word that you use for blue. And you just have to know all of these words. And if you don't know them, then you're not speaking the language. So there are many ways of being so very, very. We have our particular ways, our European ways. Languages do it in all sorts of others as well. Lori Sandler, listener Lori Sandler, this one is for you because you wrote me a little while ago that you wanted to know a little about that usage of pretty that we have. And ah, that's pretty good. Well, you know, you're right. That's interesting. So let's just get that in here. You can intensify something, but then you can also slightly intensify something. And when languages do that, there are things that they do other than using true words, and then sometimes they do. You'll see what I mean. So for example, that pretty usage. Our first sense of pretty is probably pink for various reasons, and usually referring to somebody who is not male, you know, a pretty girl. But then we might actually these days use pretty more as slight intensification. So pretty good movie. It was pretty hot, but really, let's nuke it and, you know, make it hotter. Pretty is one of those words where it started out meaning something so different, and it gives you a sense of just how language is this morphing blob that you can never quite get a hold of. Pretty starts out meaning wily. It was usually applied to men, for better or for worse, but it was somebody who was clever. So you're a pretty person. You're, you're, you're wily. You've got the tricks. Well, then there are always these kind of creeping implications. If you're wily, then some people might think, again, for better or for worse, that that's manly. So you're a manly man because you knew how to be wily. Well, if something's manly, then maybe you might start thinking of it as skillfully made because you like the angle of someone's eyebrow or their broad Fred McMurray shoulders or something like that. So a pretty thing becomes skillfully made. See how we're getting closer to our sense of pretty as involving pink and crinoline, etc. So if it's skillfully made, then maybe it's fine. It's a fine thing, right? And if it's fine, 
as in it's something that you kind of, mm, uh, uh, well, you get from that to good looking in a minor way. And if you think about it, that's what pretty is. And so minorly good looking. And then it was from there that it started being used to mean not minorly good looking, but just kind of minorly in general. And so it's a pretty cold day. There's another one. It was a rather cold day. You know, pretentious person might say that. I'm going to take a guess that that's a little more common across the pond and not pretentious, but it's a rather cold day. What's rather? Ever think about that word rather? What's a wrath? And it's not like, not, not that rather. You just know that's going to have some kind of interesting history. And unfortunately, the history of rather makes us go into Tennyson. And I'm sorry, nobody really wants to deal with any Tennyson, but it's the best example that I know. And we're going to do 1859, an insufferable poem called Lancelot and Elaine. But at one point, Elaine's kind of got the hots for Lancelot and she's asleep. And then the line says, till rather she rose half cheated in the thought. So, till rather she rose half cheated in the thought. What's rather? Rather, it doesn't say. Actually, what it is, is it means early. Rav was a now gone English word for early. So, till early she rose, till Rav she rose, till early she rose. That's what it means. And so, rather means earlier, which actually makes kind of sense if you think about how we can also use sooner. So, I'd sooner marry Ted than marry Bill. Well, if rather originally means sooner, then I'd rather marry Bertram than Cyril, that kind of thing. So that's what rather comes from. But you never know. Like you never know whether rather is going to wind up in a song. Like you never know if you're going to wind up stuck in 1936 watching a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movie called Follow the Fleet. And Irving Berlin has contributed a dandy little song called I'd Rather Lead a Band. If I were doing a music podcast, I'd make you guys listen very closely to the arrangement of this. But since we're not, let's just listen to Fred Astaire singing a cute song that happens to have a usage of the word rather in it. Here we go. I haven't ambitions or lofty positions. That wind up with the wealth of the land I'll give you the throne that a king sat on For just a small baton Providing you included a band If I could be the wealthy owner of a large industry I would say, not for me, I'd rather lead a band If I could be a politician with a chance to dictate I would say, let it wait, I'd rather lead a band my every care ceases I'm rich as old greases When I've got ten pieces in hand If I could have a millionaire With a whole flock of banks I would just whisper thanks I'd rather lead a band Get this, flowing so naturally from Fred Astaire In Mandarin, one way of giving that sense of Well, pretty good, not great, but pretty good Is to use a word Ting. There's an American way of saying it. It's ting. No, you have to do the tones. And so ting. If cold is lung, then the way to say, you know, pretty cold is ting lung, ting lung. And ting, get this, is from a word that means straight up, stiff, true, like a tree. Once again, there's this idea that standing <laughs> erect is about truth, is about what becomes very, or if not very, then 
pretty. And so it's just one of those things. No, I'm not going to play that Cole Porter song. I'm going to move on to something else. What about counter expectation? And you're thinking, well, what about it? An awful lot of what a language really is. And it's one of those things where nobody tells you, your teacher isn't going to tell you, language teachers often don't teach this, but it's a crucial part of being a language, is ways of indicating counter expectation. So for example, it's unexpected that you would want to have sexual relations with your lotion. A language has to have a way of getting that across and probably not just by using the word counter expectational. And while we're on Mandarin, here is the sort of thing I mean. You're being taught Mandarin by teachers, not my teachers, but just some teachers. And you're going through a book about how Mandarin works. And you want to know how to do the comparative. You want to know how to say something like more big, bigger, or later, more late. And often you'll be told that it's a word gung. And so it's supposed to be something like the word for handsome is shui, which sounds like it. You can just tell that means handsome. Oh, he's shui. So shui. Well, how would you say handsomer? Well, supposedly gung shui. But no, that's not really what it means. And so if you say something like you're looking for a gung shui boyfriend, then you would say you're looking for eager. Eager is a. So looking for eager gung shui. Handsomer and then boyfriend is nampangyu. And so, I'm looking for a handsomer boyfriend. That's not what that really means. That means an even handsomer boyfriend. If you want to just say that it's big, bigger, or gross, grosser, there are other ways that you do it. And so, if it's been raining and you say, well, this is kind of nice because it's cooler. Cool is liangkwai. To say cooler, you say liang dian, which kind of means a little. That's how you say it. So really, if you're going to use this gung, what you're saying is something is counter-expectationally more. That kind of counter-expectational meaning is another thing that happens to English's true words. So for example, actual or truthful. So somebody says, you know, I am verily tired, and that's come to mean just I am very tired. But think about this. If somebody says, I'm actually tired, that doesn't mean the same thing, although both vere and actual are about truth. If you say, I am actually tired, what you mean is, I'm tired against the expectation that maybe I wouldn't have been. If you say, you know, she actually ate the cat. That means that you wouldn't think that anybody would actually eat a cat because they don't taste good. You think they're cute. You don't you don't eat them. So she actually ate the cat. That's bizarre unless you're somewhere in the middle of Dr. Zhivago and there's nothing to eat but the cat because the white – never mind. So I actually ate the cat. I'm watching Dr. Zhivago right now and, folks, frankly, this is one of the dullest films I have ever seen. I've been avoiding Dr. Zhivago for 53 years and I decided I could get hit by a bus. Goodness gracious, somebody told me it was gone with the wind. No, it's just – I'm waiting for it to be gone. But in any case, if you use actually, it's counter expectational or truthfully. So he truthfully has no money. That means that you expected that he would have money because he's an earl or something. But truthfully, he has no money or and I mean that I want to keep it clean on this show, but this is just too important for me not to use it. So let's just think of it as one of the milder of our oaths. Ass. Ass is actually a counter-expectational word. And so, for example, somebody says, oh, look, a gray-ass squirrel. Oh, look, a gray-ass squirrel. Notice that that has meaning. 
You wouldn't say something was a gray-ass squirrel to mean that it's very, very gray, whatever that would even mean. Nor would you say, oh, look, it's a gray-ass squirrel if you lived, for example, in New York City. All the squirrels are gray. If you imagine somebody saying, oh, look, it's a gray-ass squirrel, then you know one thing about them, and that is that they come from somewhere where apparently the squirrels are polka-dotted or something like that. They say gray-ass because the ass, despite the fact that ass really is supposed to refer to buttocks, what it means is that it's not what you expected that the squirrel is gray. If we're going to talk about ass in that way, and I'm going to let it go, then it's time for a musical clip. Nevertheless, this is from um, Jacques Brel is Alive and Well, and Living in Paris, this is the 1960s. And, you know, there was a time when if you were a certain kind of aspirationally middle brow person, I would have been one of these people, you were supposed to have seen this or at least you had the LP in your living room propped up where everybody could see it. I am just old enough to remember that LP everywhere. And I have this fantasy. I mean, you were back then and Jacques Brel is playing on the turntable at the party and you're drinking your cocktail and you you meet a woman and you and her start talking about Jacques Brel and you have another cocktail and pretty soon you take her home and you put Jacques Brel on your turntable and you turn the lights down low and you know probably you would wind up making breakfast for that woman because the pill had been invented and you knew about Jacques Brel that is what this album has always reminded me of even though none of this ever happened to me this is the song Jackie and it has this use of ass in it although because these are much more proper times it's technically assed if I could be for only an hour if I could be for an hour every day if I could be for just one little Cute, cute, cute in a stupid ass way. That was Mort Schumann singing, folks, for those of you who cared. In any case, something else happens to the true words. Like, it's very something. It's pretty something. It's actually something. And then there's, I mean that it's something. I really mean it. I mean that it's something. It's sincerity. It's such an important part of how we express ourselves other than, you know, using an indefinite or a definite article or putting something in the past or the future. It's sincerity, like in Acha land, that language that my parents didn't speak. If you want to say, he's an Acha, well, the way you say it is Acha. Now, the Ha does not mean he. You don't need to say the he at all. And I think you know what Acha means. If you say Acha, that means he's an Acha. That is a fact. He's an Akka. If you want to say, he's really an Akka. No, he is. No, he is an Akka. There, there's an Akka. He's really an Akka. Then what you say is, Akha met. And the met doesn't mean anything except, yep, really, I mean it. I mean it. So, Akha met. So that's how Akka works. It does it with these sentence final particles. We here in this Euro language, we do it by taking, for example, another one of the true words, real. And so real ends up becoming really, which we pronounce really. It's really become a whole different word. (laughs) Really. Really. So I'm really sorry. That can be taken to mean I am sorry to a great degree. But the reason that you say really is to indicate your sincerity. What you mean is it's true that I'm sorry. You may think I'm just saying this, but no, I am really sorry. That is something that happens to words like that. And then... Of course, we get to poor little literally. Literally. Literal by the letter, therefore true, truly. And so you can say it was a literal 
translation. Okay, that's fine. But then nowadays you do hear people saying things like, oh, well, I was literally dying of thirst. And first of all, they weren't dying of thirst. They weren't that thirsty. And so certainly they weren't really dying of thirst. Oh, you know, he took me home and we talked about Jacques Brel and I walked out the next morning walking on air. Well, first of all, no, you weren't walking on air because people can't do that. And so literally walking on air, like, like, like I was literally walking on air. No, you, you weren't, especially not literally. That really bothers some people. And I have actually seen a t-shirt. I've actually only read about it, but it's more vivid. It sounds more sincere if I say that I've actually seen t-shirts where somebody has on their chest misuse of literally makes me figuratively insane. The idea being that you use a figurative expression, like I was dying of thirst. And then you say literally as if anything like that could literally happen. I think this is a misunderstanding of how it happened. I mean, really, literally, really, literally is something that comes to mean, not just by the letter, but really. So what you mean is really. Then as you're talking about dying of thirst, well, dying of thirst, that's a way of saying that you were thirsty, but you might mean that you were really thirsty. So you have two figurative uses of language in a way. Dying of thirst means just that you were thirsty and then literally means really. So nobody is saying that I actually was, you know, suffering from this kind of hypo, you know, whatever it's called. That's not what they mean. But literally dying of thirst is a way that the language has evolved. Now, some people will just say, and I get where they're coming from, but still, how can a word mean itself and its opposite? It's just, it's messy. It's like somebody leaving their shoes out in the living room or something like that. We have lots of contronyms, these words that mean opposed things. Warren Warsaw. I love your name, by the way. You wanted to hear about contronyms? Well, I'm jamming it in right here because contronyms are very important. And so I was stuck fast. That means that you're not going anywhere. I was fast asleep. Again, you are certainly not going anywhere. The rabbit runs fast. Where's the rabbit? It has nothing to do with being stuck fast. If you take that rabbit and drive a stake through its paw, then it's stuck fast. I'm sorry I did that to the rabbit, but you get the point. And so it would be moving very quickly, very fast, except that it can't move because of the paw. Oversight. I was given oversight, probably of something dull. Whoops, that was an oversight. I should have seen it. So, if you have oversight over the insurance adjuster's pool or something like that, you're paying close attention. But then oversight can also mean that you missed it completely. And, you know, nobody bats an eye. If anything, it's just kind of cute. And so what's wrong with literally being that way? Yes, there are more of those. All the paint on the aluminum weathered away. OK, but then I can weather the storm so I can stand. You know, that's an Irving Berlin song called I've Got My Love to Keep Me Warm. That's also from 1936. So, you know, the wind is blowing, the snow is snowing, but I can weather the storm. What do I care how much it may storm? You can hold up in that weather. But then something can weather away. And I'm not sure whether he, he, anybody has ever cared. Sanction. I sanction this action. I'm going to put some sanctions upon you so that you won't sell anybody any oil. Directly opposed. And yet nobody says, I stand fast against the misuse of fast. Nobody says, I hereby sanction the use of sanction to me. Nobody says any of that. All of us are doing awfully well. See, awfully well. And so literally, I think we should 
leave literally alone. It's like that kid that got picked on in fifth grade for no reason. It may have been you. It was me for about a month. And it really literally should be left alone to enjoy the burgeonings of adolescence. If we're talking about really, then I think that we've got to have some music, man. This is 1957. This is Barbara Cook, the late great Barbara Cook, and she is Miriam Peru. She's having an argument with her mother, who is Pert Kelton, who was a wonderful actress, who was the first Alice Cramden in the initial Honeymooners sketches. And so listen for really in this wonderful musical argument between the two of them over Marion's romantic prospects. When a woman has a husband and you've got none, why should she take advice from you? Even if you can't quote Balzac and Shakespeare and all them other highfalutin Greeks. Mama, if you don't mind my saying so, you have a bad habit of changing every subject. No, I haven't changed the subject. I was talking about that stranger. That stranger. With a suitcase who made me your very last chance. Mama, do you think I'd allow a common measure now, really, Mama? Here she said, really. Now let's go on. I have my standards where men are concerned, and I have no intention. I know all about your standards, and if you don't mind my saying so, there's not a man alive who could hope to measure up to that blender, Paul Bunyan, St. Pat, and Noah Webster. You've concocted for yourself out of your Irish imagination, your Iowa stubbornness, and your library full of books. Folks, by the way, while we're on that lyric, listen to the way Barbara Cook cuts herself off. The character cuts herself off and then comes back. So, really, Mother, do you think I'd let a common masher? Then she starts another sentence. Listen to this. Mama, do you think I'd allow a common masher? No, really, Mama. I have my standards where men are concerned. That's really good writing because that's how people talk. You know, Music Man can seem kind of corny. Who wants to see something called Music Man in the first place? But it's full of really nice little touches like that. There is one more thing that we have to get in here, and that is reversal. And what I mean by that is that another way that you can intensify, and this is not using the true words, is that you can use, talk about these contronyms, you can use a word that means the opposite of what you're trying to do. And so something is good, you might want to say that it's very good. One way that you might want to do that is to say that something is bad, and that can mean good. Now, of course, most of us are familiar with that from Black English and the idea that something is bad and that's good. But actually, there are a lot of languages that do that. In Mandarin, there's a word lihai, and that means fierce. And they use that. The way I've been taught it is that it means cool. I only learn the fierce meaning later. You'd say that somebody does something in a cool way. Well, then you are lihai. I was being overcomplimented on something I completely forget. And one of them said I was lihai. And I thought, oh, wow, that means that, you know, I've got some sort of swagger, which I don't. But what it really means is fierce. But what's interesting is that, you know, while we're at it, just folks, listen, listen to this. For a second. This is um, a commercial for sure deodorant from the 80s. Just listen. Raise your hand. You got it. Raise your hand. You know it. You feel confident, secure. Raise your hand. You feel dry now. Raise your hand. You know why now. Raise your hand. And you're sure. You've got it. That sure, secure, confident feeling. Because each sure gives you enough protection to help feel dry all day. Sure. 
That was for no reason. That is my very favorite commercial jingle ever. It makes me feel so proud and confident. I actually used Sure Deodorant for a while back in the 80s because that song made me want to use that deodorant, even though, frankly, it isn't very good. Anyway, I just had to play that on the show once. So, Black English, think about this bad business. It's just a, a little... A little something, and I have to break the rule about cleanliness on the show a little bit even more, but for heuristic purposes. Think about, first of all, badass has largely replaced bad in that old bad meaning. And think about badass motherfucker. Badass motherfucker. Think about how opaque that is in terms of what those words originally meant. Talk about the glory of linguistic evolution. Bad means not good. Ass refers to a pair of buttocks. A mother is the woman who gave birth to you. A fucker is somebody who performs sexual intercourse. So, bad-ass motherfucker. That's, that means that somebody's what used to be called a good egg, I suppose. Well, think that that's supposed to be a negatively buttocked fornicator with the woman who birthed you. It's completely different from anything that anybody speaking English as recently as 200 years ago would have understood at all. You know, insects' wings, wings on a bug, those started as just scales. You never know. The little ear bones, what is it, the stirrup and the anvil and the hammer, those little things that, you know, if you've got a model of a skeleton, they either don't do them or they get lost. Those little ear bones that allow you to be listening, unfortunately to me right now, those started as lower jaw bones and they crept up into the ear. Can you believe it? That's another analogy here. Or the Simpsons, the Simpsons started as a skit on that Tracy Ullman show, who knew 30 years ago that that little crappy cartoon was going to still be around in its polished, marvelous, although no, not as good as it used to be after season 12 self. 30 years later, it started as a skit on a now forgotten variety show on the early Fox network. Well, badass motherfucker is like the bones in your ear. That's the last time anybody's ever going to say that sentence, but it's true. You know, I think that here's how we're going to have to go out. We're going to have to go out on something else that's completely random because it's a lousy January. We are about to have some sort of non-blizzard in New York as I tape this that's going to make the next three days utterly miserable. It's time for a little bit of Nero Wolf. Nero Wolf is a detective. It starts out as a series of books, I think in the 1920s. He's a portly detective who rarely leaves his house. He lives in a brownstone in New York City. And of course, this became a radio show and there was a movie series. And many of you may have caught the swanky A&E Nero Wolf series back going on 20 years ago now. But before that, in 1981, there was an attempt to do a Nero Wolf show, very opulent, with William Cannon, who was famous as Ironside or for those of you who go further back, Gunsmoke. And it wasn't really very good, but I remember watching it. And what I liked about it was just this lifestyle that they portrayed. He's quite portly. He grows orchids up on his roof and he has a live-in chef and he eats sumptuously all the time. And he has his lieutenant go out and solve the crimes. And then he figures it all out sitting in his chair in the living room. And he ate this wonderful food. I learned what saffron was on this show. And I used to 
for some reason, I identified with this man. I don't know what that says about me that I wanted to live in that brownstone and live that life. I could just see myself sitting there late at night eating peach jello with a peaty scotch <laughs> accompanying it. Love Nero Wolf. But you know what I liked about this show? I would always fall asleep. I wasn't used to staying up so late. It was the theme song. It was really one of the five best theme songs ever written. Ignore the little hints in the arrangement that the disco era had just ended. This was just good music. Here it goes. <laughs> You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. For those of you who want to hear this song some more, you want to hear it within the episodes that people have uploaded for some reason. Don't listen to the theme song uploaded by itself. They always kind of cut the ending off. Anyway, the show was edited, as always, by Mike Volo. And I'm John McWhorter. And I do leave my house and thank you to ck brook for lexicon valley bingo i'm going to leave the rest of you in suspense as to what that is but you made my evening have a good week folks <laughs>